I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Luke. Make sure my mic is on here. Yeah, we're good to go there. All right. Luke chapter 12 is where we are returning to. Got nothing, huh? Well, I'll let you look at Luke there while we get this worked out. I might just grab a handheld. Maybe I'll do that. Oh, here we go. It's coming. All right. Well, this works for now while we grab a mic stand here. But I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 48 is where we are looking here this morning. But we are going to do something uh, a little bit different here this morning. First, I'll be holding a handheld mic. That'll be different, right? Um, But we're also going to do something a little different. If, If you open up your bulletin, you'll notice something. Some have sought to point out to me that things are backwards here this morning. You'll notice uh, that everything is in reverse order here on your bulletin, and that is intentional. Okay? Now, that's intentional for a very specific reason. Let me tell you why I'm not doing this, first of all. I'm not doing this uh, in backwards order to be trendy. You know, to kind of be, hey, this is the guy who preaches a sermon backwards, and then maybe that's some gimmick that would get people's attention. Because that's not necessarily the case. Oh, here we go. Thank you, buddy. Now comes the hard part. Can I get that in there? Nope. That ain't going to work. I can also hold it, too. So, But I'm not doing this necessarily to be gimmicky. That's not the point behind it. Actually, I was so grateful for the way that Jeff... Uh, uh, introduced the scripture reading this morning because I was thinking, boy, he's just setting the table for me here. This is a passage with a lot of familiar verses to it. There's lots of things in here you'd be familiar with if you've been around Christianity for any length of time. There are just a a ton of information in here that you just would know. And so it's easy to disengage. It's easy to disengage. Ignore the audio men behind the curtain. (laughs) They're just trying to find the right clip. For this thing, so. But it's easy to completely, kind of, as you're going through a passage like this, disengage. It's easy to hear things you're familiar with, hear things that you would absolutely have have heard before. And so, what I want to do is, I want to look at this passage from a little different perspective. Sometimes you have to take a step back, you have to look at something from a different point of view. And when you look at it from a different point of view, it suddenly becomes a little more clear. So what I want to do is look at this passage backwards. I want to start with uh, uh, kind of the final section of the Scripture that we look at. Work our way backwards. Thank you, Jeff. Mike going. All right. All right, are we good? Don't touch it. Can you hear me? All right. Hey, that's worth a clap, right? (laughs) Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Getting that rolling. You know, we set up every week and tear down every week. And so in that whole process of setting up and tearing down, wires short out, things just happen, and and this is just one of those days where this worked, this little lapel mic worked before the service, and then for some reason it doesn't work now. Who knows? It doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you. It wouldn't bother me even if it did bother you. So So, what I want to do here this morning, lest I get too distracted and wander off here, What I want to do here this morning is I want to look at this passage 
uh, from the back end loading to the front end. And the reason why is it's going to give us a different perspective on what we see here. And that little bit of that different perspective, I think, will make it pop. So when I was working on the sermon, and, and I got to the very end uh, of, of what I, the, the section, the thought that I believe Jesus was saying, uh, it hit me, boy, it'd be so easy to just disengage. So flipping it around, I think, will make you see some things more clearly. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start with the conclusion. And I want to give you this little caveat as we begin going backwards. Uh, it's going to start off a little thin, meaning I'm going to say some things and you're going to go, okay, I don't understand that. But you see, as it's building, it'll start to get more clear. And the, and the whole reason why I want to do it this way and starting with the conclusion is I want you to be slightly confused as to what I'm talking about. Because I want to let you let the text begin to answer it for you. And so it's intended, if you're going through this going, what's he saying? What's he saying? That's okay. Let that confusion kind of guide you because it'll give you more, a, little, a little bit of a more intense eyes over some familiar ground. So, here's start with a conclusion. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion is this. Jesus is telling his disciples that he wants them to live in this world for the kingdom of God. He wants them to live in the world for the kingdom of God. He's been encouraging these disciples to not minister like the Pharisees, to not be like the Pharisees, but instead to be completely different, to not give their heart towards covetousness. Remember that guy came up to him and asked him a uh, question. We looked at it last week. Settle the accounts. My brother's not giving me the inheritance. And he's telling his disciples, listen, you can get so wrapped up in living for this world that you stop living for the kingdom of God. And then what you do is you're going to take the kingdom of God And you're going to make the kingdom of God a means to help you live for the world. And that's the most dangerous shift that could could happen. That you would take the truth of the kingdom of God and make it the truth that leads you to live for this world. And God doesn't answer the prayer requests that make us love this world more. It's not the way that He works. And so what He wants us to do is to live, and here's the key, in this world for the kingdom. Not for this world in the kingdom. See, if I live for the world in the kingdom, then what I'm doing is I'm making my passion and pursuit of life this world. And I'm using God to help me get there. What I want to do is live in the world, be good stewards of what He's given me for the kingdom. Now, by way of conclusion, let me give you some points to ponder. These points won't really make any sense until we get through the sermon, but here are the points I want you to ponder. You can write these down. First question I want you to think about this week as we close. Why did God give you your body? Why did he give you the body that you're in? Now, I'm not asking you to ask that in some kind of therapeutic sense, like why aren't I taller, why aren't I shorter, whatever, that kind of a thing. But, but why do you have this flesh? Why did he put us in the body that we have? Second question I want you to think about. Did he give you your body only for identity and pleasure? Meaning, how I look, the status that I have, and the joy I want to get out of this world, and the pleasure that that we get from engaging this world. Is that the sum total of our body? Identity and pleasure. Well, here's the reality. Our bodies were not designed to be worried about 
Our bodies were not designed to to just be for the pursuit of identity and pleasure, but our bodies were designed so that we might find the fulfillment of God's purposes in them. The fulfillment of God's purposes in them. And when we find that, God becomes glorified. And we actually have joy. So when we use our bodies for the things that God has designed them to be used for, there's joy. That's what I want you to see. That's the things I want you to meditate on. Now, that's the conclusion. Now what we need to do is move to our third point in the sermon to kind of see how we get to this conclusion. So as we we move now into the third point of the message, we're going to look at verse 35. And and what we're going to do, we're going to see this final crescendo point that Jesus is making with his disciples, which is he wants them to live on mission. That's what he wants them to do. And what this particular uh, third point is doing is he's trying to give them a mindset or a worldview through which they are to process their whole life. So this is the worldview of a Christian right here. And it's a Christian, the Christian mindset, the Christian focus is to live on mission. Now let's look at how he gets there. Look at verse 35 with me. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake and when he comes, when he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, so, again, we're kind of way at the very end of a thought here. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving a series of pictures. There's three pictures he's painting. And these three pictures are meant to describe how he wants the disciples to live their life. This is what he wants. He's giving them three pictures. The first picture is he says, listen, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Now, this is an image that might not totally make sense to you, but uh, it's an image that would have made sense to them. In our day, if we get up in the middle of the night and we hear something, we turn on a light. It's right there. We get light. If our power's out and we have a flashlight handy, we just flip on a flashlight. If we have to light a lantern, we have one of those little clicker things or a match that we can light. We can get light relatively quickly. In that day, if it were the middle of the night and you had to light a lamp, it was a long, arduous process. First question, where are you going to get the flame from? You don't know where you're going to get right? So you're going to have to go down to where your fire is, where the coals are. Stumble your way down to where the coals are. Get a little stick that you can stick in the coals and see if it'll catch on fire. Then you've got to get your lamp ready, and you've got to trim the wick all in the dark. And get the wick at the right height, and make sure there's oil in it. And if you let your lamps burn out in the middle of the night and there was no oil, then you have to stumble around in the dark to find oil to put it in the lamp. You ever try pouring oil in the dark? Okay, It's a big process to get light in the middle of the night. So here's what he's saying. 
If you were a servant or a soldier, your job was to always be ready for the call. If your master says, come, you've got to say, I'm coming. Which means that servants or soldiers, in both cases, they always had their lamp ready. Meaning, it always had just a little wick and always oil in it. And the lamp was always just smoldering. So they could just turn that lamp up and get ready to go. Have their clothes ready, be able to get ready. So in order to keep that going, you had to be vigilant to keep oil in your lamp. So he's saying this. Disciples, I want you to be ready. Now you're saying, Steve, be ready for what? We'll get there. Okay, Remember, it's starting thin. But, but he's telling them, I want you to be ready. Second thing he wants them to do is he wants them to be waiting. Notice this next set of pictures. He gives that whole illustration. Master going off on a wedding. And when that master returns, those servants better be ready for the return of the master. Now what does that mean? Well, remember, in, in that day there weren't phones and cell phones and things like that, right? We know that. So when a guy would go off to get married, he'd go off to he'd go to the father's house and go pick up his bride. And he'd have, he'd have a one-week, maybe a two-week wedding ceremony. A long wedding. And, and travel took a long time. So if he went and was marrying a girl that lived far away, that master could be gone for a month. Could be gone for two months. And no one knew when he was coming back. Which meant that the servants, from the moment the master left, had to always be ready for the return of the master. And the last thing the master would want is to be returning at 3 o'clock in the morning with his new bride and not able to get in his house. That would not make him happy. Right? Sorry, honey. You're going to have to wait about a half hour for these guys to get the lamps burning, you know, so they can unlock and unlatch the door and let us in. And because when you traveled in that day, you weren't traveling with large amounts of food, whenever someone would arrive at your house, your responsibility was to feed them. So if they didn't have food ready for the return of the master, now they got a big problem. So he says, be like those good servants that are waiting for the return so that at any moment, whether it's 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, that's the pictures he's painting here. As soon as he arrives, the door's open, there's food ready, which means that you are always having the food ready, always having the lamps burning, always ready, right? And be waiting for this day. Don't say, ah, he's gone for a wedding, he'll be gone for a month, we can kind of slack off for a while, and then get it all cleaned up and ready when we think he's returning. Don't live that way. That's a bad sermon. Okay? So that's the second picture he draws. Third picture he paints. Be prepared. Now he shifts from a servant to a master, and he says now when a master takes care of his house, he doesn't know when the burglar is going to come because burglars don't send out notices. Hey, I'm coming to rob your house at 3 in the morning. So you always have to be ready. Right? And we do that in our own homes. We lock our doors at night. We check on things. We make sure everything's done. Garage doors are closed and all that stuff before we go to bed. Our little security check. Hopefully you do that. You know, you make sure your house is safe. And he's saying that's what a good servant does or a good master does. He's always ready. Always prepared. Now, Jesus gives these three pictures. And if you're like Peter, you're saying, what do we do with these three pictures? Notice Peter in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for, a, for us or for all? Now, why is he saying this? Remember the context. They're surrounded by thousands of people. Jesus has just been giving instructions to them about uh, not being like the Pharisees. Then this guy jumps up and says, hey, 
settle accounts. You know, my brother won't give me part of the inheritance. And Jesus chastises the guy and says, don't live. You're covet. You're, you're, you're living with covetousness in your heart. Don't live that way. You're like the rich fool who thinks all, all of life is built up in the pleasures of this moment. And then Jesus starts going off in all these statements, and then he starts giving all these pictures of the masters, and Peter says, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? Who are you talking to? In one sense, these three pictures seem totally disengaged because he's just first warned them about the Pharisees. Then he starts talking about greed. Now he starts talking about being a good servant. Doesn't make sense. Confusing. So now Jesus is going to answer the question. He doesn't directly answer the question. But he tells them the point of the story. Ready? Verse 42. Hopefully this is the first moment when it starts to click for you here. What's going on? Verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So Jesus answers Peter with a question. The question is, Who's the faithful servant? Who's the good servant? The answer, the blessed one, the good servant, is the one who is ready for whatever his master calls him to do. That's the point. Now we're going to see in a minute, covetousness, living for yourself, living for the moment, does not prepare you to live for the kingdom of God. When we live for ourselves, then when the call of God comes in, what we say is, I'm not ready. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about that. This is my agenda. So he's saying, listen, guys, here's the point I'm trying to get you at. I want you to be ready for whatever I call you to do. And then he goes on to give some very, very stern pictures here. Notice these pictures. These are, these are meant to be warnings. It begins in 44. He says, truly, I say to you. Now, when you see the word truly, you can insert the word amen in there because that's actually what it is. And the word amen means so be it. So whenever Jesus begins with an amen or a so be it, he's saying stick a fork in it. This is it. Like it's done. Like whatever, you know, what I'm about to say, better get your attention here. This is immovable. It's another way you could say it. So when I see a truly, it, it, I go, whoop. Okay, this is immovable. And what is about to be said here is really harsh. So just be prepared. He says, truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, right? The one who's, who's faithful gets a lot from God. That's good news. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. He's going to kill him and stick him in a grave for the, with the criminals. Now that's harsh, isn't it? What in the world is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen, those people say they want to follow God. They live for themselves. And they only, they're basically like kind of army reservists. They only serve God on the weekends. You know, one weekend and a couple weeks a year on a missions trip or a VBS thing. 
But really, the bulk of their life is live for their own pleasure. That's why they're fighting and eating and drinking and getting drunk. They're just living for themselves. So the bulk of their week is living for themselves, except on those occasional moments when they have to serve God, they'll do that. Those people will not face a happy master in the end. They will face consequences. They will face severe consequences. In fact, he goes on in verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Here's what he's saying. The master says, this is what I want you to do, right? The master leaves the house. He says, you know, be prepared for me and my bride to come back. So then the guy says, oh, he's going to be gone for a month. We don't have to be prepared. We don't have to, we don't, we don't have to worry about it. We just hang out for a month, take it easy. Then the master comes back in two weeks. That master is going to whoop up on this guy. Now, Jesus is saying the punishments come measured. So people who had been given more responsibility and understood more are going to be accountable for more. People who have been given less will be accountable for less. But in the end, everyone will be accountable. So it's measured based upon what he told you. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be all in, guys. This is not something to play around with. We're talking about the eternal God of the universe. You cannot be messing around like the Pharisees, creating laws and doing it your own way. You can't be like these covetous people thinking that the kingdom of God is all about making you, you know, rich and living in this world. You've got to understand something. You are either all in or you will face it in the end. No gains. No gain. It's very harsh. Very strong words of Jesus. He's telling these disciples, this is it, man. No games, no middle ground, no weekend warriors. All kingdom or all out of the kingdom. It's that black and white. Now here's the question. What keeps us from living this way for the kingdom of God? What keeps us from being all in? Because when you read this, you don't go, hallelujah, I'm all in. You go, ouch, right? You think about all of the things where you're living for yourself and you start feeling the weight of that, don't you? So here's the question. Why do you feel that way? And why aren't you all in? Jesus identifies one reason and he gives two dimensions of that one reason. There's one reason why you're not all in. And it's this. Fear. You are afraid. Fear drives us from being all in. And there's two things we're afraid of. There's two fears we're born with in this world. The first fear is the fear that we're not going to survive, and the second fear is that we're not going to prosper. Right? We're afraid that that, that we're going to lack something, and we're afraid we're not going to live. And he identifies these two fears. And the reason why he identifies these two fears is because he wants the disciples to be all in. 
He wants them to be all in. So here's the second of the two fears, right? Our second point, the fear of lacking. We have a fear that we're not going to survive, or that we're not going to prosper, that we're not going to have what we should get. So look at verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now here's what he's saying. Do not be afraid. The Father has given you the eternal kingdom of God. What does that mean? You get the power of God, right? You get the Spirit of God. You get security of knowing you're loved by God for all eternity. You get the hope that the stuff of this world is not the final chapter of reality of life. You get peace with God, which means He's no longer going to be mad at you. You get meaning and purpose in your life. And you get eternity in a perfect kingdom that will never end. That's what He's provided. That's what you have in Christ. What are you afraid of? What happens? We start living for our possessions is what He's saying. We start living for these things. I need this. I need that. You don't understand. You see, if I can get this and this, then I can get that and that. Right? It's that whole if-then worldview. If only we could get to this place, then we could get there. And you see, I've got to get to this place so I can get there. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't do that way. In fact, give it away. You've got the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you have on earth. That's what he's saying. This stuff that you get, if you get every if, and you've got every then in your life, it lasts, means nothing. It means nothing. You see, what he's saying is, in the things of this world, we can't live for the things of this world because the things of this world are only for this world. And God, according to Romans 8.21, has stripped all the meaning from this world. Which means if you got every if-then, it means nothing. It means nothing. It's an interesting book I read about a dozen years ago or so called The Way of the Modern World. The premise of the book is uh, the author is pushing forth is saying, whether we know it or not, sometimes in the church, we live like we're atheists. And he's, he's laying this out, what, what this means. And he says, you know, Christians sometimes, the, the most holy looking Christians sometimes are actually the greatest atheists in the world. I want to read kind of a lengthy quote. But if you could follow along with this quote, I think it really matches and, and undergirds what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about worldliness in this quote. And he's trying to define worldliness. And listen to his definition. He says, if we are conservative, we have probably tended to think of the world, and hence worldliness, in terms of temptations to various kinds of dissipation and to personal 
and particularly sexual immorality. If we're liberal in disposition, we have perhaps conceived of the world in terms of socio-structural evils, such as racism or oppressiveness and those kind of political systems that support that. Both views are certainly correct. Personal immorality and socio-political injustice are indeed worldly evils to be condemned and avoided. Now, here's the point. But what if it can be shown that both the conservative and the liberal positions, while they are partly correct, actually miss the heart of the matter? What if the essence of the world, and hence of worldliness, is not personal immorality and or social injustice as such, but is instead an interpretation of reality that essentially excludes the reality of God from the business of life? I know it's a lengthy quote, but I hope you heard what he said. So sometimes we look at worldliness and say, oh, it's just, you know, immorality over there, all those, you know, wicked, sexually immoral people. Or it's oppressive governments and racism and things like that. Well, guess what? I'm not sexually immoral and I'm not a racist. I must not be worldly. And he's saying, what about if worldliness was actually the fact that you live your life as if God doesn't exist? Now, what would happen if that was the definition of worldliness? Would you be considered worldly? Well, the way you answer that question is by saying, what am I pursuing? Am I pursuing the possessions of this world? Am I pursuing the stuff of this world so that, this, so that I put my hope in it because I feel like I need to have this? I have to have this. I've got to have security. If, I, if we don't get this amount in the bank, we're not going to be safe. And, we're, you know, and this worry, 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 worry. And he says, fear not. You've already been given the kingdom of God. That fear keeps us from being all in for the kingdom because it causes us to start building up storehouses of stuff to put our security in. That's the first fear. Let's look at the second fear. The second fear is the fear of actually not surviving, which is the first point. Right? What keeps us from being all in? What keeps us from serving the kingdom? We're afraid we're not going to live. We get worried about it. Notice what he says. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on. Verse 23. Here's the key. This ties into those application questions at the end. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. That's the key you've got to catch right there. If you want to understand Jesus' point, you have to understand verse 23. Verse 23 begins with a four. You notice that for life is more than, which means he's explaining his point. If I be, get afraid of my survival, I start living for the income, living for the job, living for the says, I have to have this, I have to have it. We got to do this. We got to work extra. We got, we got. Then what happens? I'm saying all life is, is made up of what I eat and what I wear. The sum total of my body is its survival. That's it. Life is about living and surviving each day. And Jesus is saying there is more to life than surviving. If you're in a survival mode, you're not living. 
And you will not live for the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God will come and say, here's what I'm asking of you. This is what I'm calling you to do. And you'll say, but I can't do that right now because you say, I've got to work this extra job and I've got to do this and I have to do that. And I could do this and I could serve you, but I have to do this first. You see what happens? It all gets in the way because you see the, the focus of life is not God's kingdom. The focus of life is my survival. Which means I'm reducing life down to what I eat and what I wear and where I live and the house I live in and all of that. You say, there's more to life than that. There's God's kingdom. There's finding your purpose in what God has created you to do and how He's aligned you to be part of this great plan that He started before the earth was created. And there's a unique purpose that you serve in that. And if you could see that purpose, you realize life is more than survival. It's more than survival. So, he wants to make sure that they understand that they will be provided for. So look at verse 24. He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barns. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Right? They don't, the only houses birds live in are the ones we build for them. Right? right? We're trying to get storehouses for them. <laughs> right? You say, listen, God provides for them, and God loves you more than he loves a bird. Verse 25. And which of you, now here's, I want you to catch this. This should be the life verse for all of us. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. Many of us would live to Old Testament ages if worry, <laughs> you know, it could add days. Some of us be living a thousand years, you know, if worry, right? You could add up all the worry you had this week about things in life. How old would you be if you got a year for every hour you worried? But he says, that's not the case. You don't get that. Okay, verse 26. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Right? You can't add any days to your life. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Right? If you live and worry about all of that stuff, what you're saying is, God, you're not on top of this thing. You're not on top of this thing. God, you know what? I've I, I got to make up because you're really not in charge here. And so I better worry about this. I better own this, this problem because you see, God, you're not sovereign. And he's saying, listen, God knows your need. And if he cares for the birds, he'll care for you. He will. And you cannot add anything to your life. And so don't live like the people who don't know God. Don't live like the nations of the world and all these atheists that are out there that don't believe in God, that don't trust God, that worry about their survival. Instead, look at verse 31. Seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. That's the key. Live for the kingdom of God. You say, God, what are the gifts and talents you've, you've designed in me that I'm to be using to serve you? That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be some massive you know, missions trip somewhere where tens of millions get saved. 
It could be just faithfully serving in your job. It could be any of that. But the point is this. We live in this world as faithful stewards of this world for the kingdom. We don't live for the world in the kingdom. The kingdom of God was not designed to get you to find your security in this world. We trust that God will be a provider and I'll be faithful stewards of whatever he gives me. If it's a million dollars, I'll be, try to be a faithful steward of that. If it's one dollar, I'll try to be a faithful steward of that. Because I'm going to live in the world. I want to bring glory to him. But I'm living for the kingdom. That's the point. That's what we should seek. And notice the order in verse 31. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. We flip that around. I need to get everything in order then I'll be all in for the kingdom. God, Jesus, first let me take care of some things at home, and then I'll follow you. See how we do that? We flip it around. We just, those guys did that Jesus was talking. Let me first take care of this, then I'll do this. And he's saying, no, just say, Jesus, I'm all in, and I'll trust that you are there. So, our introduction to the sermon. Let's go to the introduction. Here's the point I want you to get from today's sermon. The point is this. Jesus is calling us to live in the world for the kingdom. Not for the world in the kingdom. In the world for the kingdom. And Jesus makes this point by addressing two fears, right? The fear of not surviving and the fear of lacking. And he says, listen. I want you to live on mission, so I want you to surrender your fears to God. Surrender those fears to God. He will provide for your survival. He will provide for whatever prosperity He wants you to have. But I want you to know this, whatever you have been given, you've been given enough to bring glory to Him today. You lack nothing. So, let me open this sermon with a story. Okay? Recently, I spoke to a man who um, was on the verge, is on the verge of losing everything. His own physical life, got a deadly disease. His family life is corroding around him. He is at rock bottom, but he's a believer. People surrounding him are not. He's in a bad place. He literally losing everything called me. We know through acquaintances I met him. I went over to his house three, four weeks ago, sat in his living room, proceeded to tell me that he's probably not going to live too long because of this disease that he has, and told me about his family problems and his children that are estranged and all sorts of things. Just a, so it's a heartbreaking story. But this is what he said. He said, Steve, I don't want this crisis to go to waste. I've been praying that somehow God would use this trial to make his name known. It's an interesting statement. I said, you mind if I take out my phone and write that down real quick? He said, I'm not checking emails or text messaging. I just want to write down what you said. The guy's losing everything, and all he can think about is wanting to make Christ known to his family members that are turning on him while he's dying. Right? Think about that kind of betrayal. You're dying and your family members are turning on you. I don't know, I've never been, I mean, you know, 
That is betrayal I can't even imagine. And you know what he said? I want to love those people in my family. I want to show them Christ's love. I want this moment to be the moment where they hear about the love of Christ and the cross and the fact that when I was an enemy, Christ died for me. I don't want to get bitter and say, what about me? I'm dying over here, literally dying. Instead, I want to say, listen, Christ died for you. And he starts telling me his passion for sharing Christ with these people that are hating him. Powerful moment. And I ask myself, what does it take to have that kind of mindset? You know what it takes to have that kind of mindset? It takes somebody who says, I trust that I'm in your hands. You, you got me, God. You're my provider. I'm not going to try to live and fight for what I deserve. I'm not going to try to live and fight for this or get the most out of life before I die. I can be all in on your kingdom and recognize this horrible, painful crisis and this horrible disease that's eating up his body. He's destroying him. He's in pain. He's in agony. And yet, he says, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that my family member knows Christ. How do you get to be all in like that? You've got to surrender those fears to Christ. And that's what this passage intended to push us toward. Would you bow your head with me? And let's just pray. And let's just let the words of Christ sink into our hearts. Do not fear. You've been given the kingdom of God. Do not fear. God will provide for you. Instead, seek his kingdom. and Be all in, not just on the weekends, but as a way of life. Father, we come before you this morning pushed by this passage, pushed hard. It pushes us to die to ourselves and to die to what we think we need. But Lord, it even pushes us in a huge area of our life. In that area that we have that we want to control everything. That we want to just grip onto this world and hold onto it and control it and control the outcomes and control people to get what we want, to get what we deserve. And Lord, that is all driven by fear. Fear of losing. But what do we have to lose when we've already been given your kingdom? What do we have to lose? We've already been provided for. We lose nothing. We have gained it all. So, Lord, may we live all in. Lord, keep us from living like atheists. Cause us, God, to live for your kingdom. And Jesus, as we're pushed, may we respond in those areas where your spirit is revealing our flesh. May we bring it to the throne of grace where you are there lovingly willing to receive us, cleanse us, restore us, and help us and guide us to live this way. So, Father, we just present ourselves to you, all of us, for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.